If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Friends, do you ever feel like your marketing efforts are screaming or even worse, whispering into the void? If you do feel that way, it is time for you, as our guest today would say, to stop wasting time on random acts of marketing. Today, we're going to be talking to Lindsay Dayton Lachelle. She is a marketing activist and also the creator of the Open Lines Marketing Framework. And we're actually recorded this live at CauseCamp. And Lindsay was a presenter on multiple occasions at CauseCamp. She presented a full-day marketing boot camp the day before the conference started. She also presented several sessions, including the final closeout session that everybody attended. And whenever I saw Lindsay, this is true, whether it was between sessions, at breakfast, or at dinner at the hotel restaurant later that night, she was always surrounded by cause camp participants who wanted to know more after attending one of her sessions or attending her boot camp. Now, Lindsay's life work is to advance justice, equity, and sustainability through access to excellent marketing strategies for women, indigenous, queer, or people of color founders, B Corps, and nonprofits. She does this through workshops, speaking gigs, and consulting, and she has helped thousands of organizations reevaluate and realign their marketing strategies to be more empathetic, more efficient, and more effective. And one of the things that I love about going to conferences and getting to record with individual presenters is we're doing it face-to-face, and so I'm able to bring you an incredible conversation that most people at Cause Camp were not able to get because Lindsay and I spent a full hour together. And in this conversation, I'm going to bring you the very best of what we talked about. So this is an episode you are going to get a lot out of. Hey, Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Dolph. Thanks for having me. So obviously, in preparation for this, I spent some time on your website. I also got some information from Cause Camp about you. And I know that you have created 
an open lines framework. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about that framework? Yeah, it started with, I had seen in other agencies I had worked in, I had observed this problem where we would do this amazing deep dive work on We would do um, like roundtable interviews of website users. We would do right feature testing, all kinds of research, and out would spit this strategy. Your readers can't see, or my your listeners can't see my like air quotes, but it was it was a strategy because it was basically a really pretty you know PowerPoint presentation, and then. Nothing happened after that. It was just a like context setting for the rest of the work that the website or the or the marketing plan would do. And it always struck me that it seemed like we were missing the opportunity to really connect the dots, make sure that the things that we were doing in the strategy did push themselves all the way through to like what was going into the social media feed or how the email newsletter was managed. And so when I started my own agency in 2015, I sort of set out to solve that problem and the open lines framework, that was that was where it came from. It was originally designed to build consensus, like proactively build consensus between the strategists, the organization leaders, my client leaders, and my team who were executing the work so that we were all always on the same page so that when the client came to us and said, hey, why aren't we doing this on Facebook? We could point to the strategy and say, it's not advised. It's not going to serve our audience, right? Or it could go the other way where we could go to them and say, hey, listen, we're missing an opportunity here. Let's, you know, can we have some resources to pursue this idea? The strategy suggests it's going to be well-informed, right? So that was it. It's really just a table. It's a, a rows and columns way of organizing the way that you think about actually implementing marketing, but it's incredibly powerful. Lindsay, I saw that table at your website and, and it's easily accessible. I also really appreciate how open source you are. Mm. So you're not hiding it. You're not saying once you hire my firm, you're going to be able to see this, this table. And of course, friends, we're going we're gonna to share the URL at the end. So uh, stick with us and you're going to get the URL. You'll be able to see the table for yourself. I did also notice right below that table, you've got eight steps. Yep. And today we're not going to have time to talk about all eight steps. I know that would probably take all day. I think you just led an all day session here at Cross Camp yesterday. Yep. Yeah. So, so that would probably take all day. And our, <laughs> our listeners only commit to about 30 to 35 minutes with us. So, so, but I'm hoping we can maybe touch on two or three of them. And one that, that I thought was really important. And I know back when I was an executive director, maybe I did not spend enough time on this and, and my team did not spend enough time on this is the question, who are your people? I know it, you know, I see it so much. Nonprofits, much more than businesses, have a really hard time. Lots of businesses struggle with this too, but nonprofits really have a hard time being honest about who they're not for, right? This idea that like anyone who wants to could support us. We hear it all the time. And the truth is, yeah, probably, maybe, but does that mean that it's in your best interest? Does that mean that it is the most efficient way to increase your opportunity is by talking to everybody? And my answer is absolutely not. And so we go through the just understanding your audiences are the two most significant and time-consuming steps of the entire process. Because it's not just 
who your people are, right? You might have small dollar donors that come in a few different flavors, your subscribers or your once a year people, obviously high net worth, or even the, um, I work with my clients on shaping their, their um, foundation grant reviewer persona, right? Because there should be enough of those that we can think about strategically about them as an audience and how we can set ourselves up for success in communicating with them. But understanding them in a vacuum is like on a, you know, like who they are on any given day, what's important to them. That's only the first step. The second piece of that work that I think is even more important is understanding that they have different questions and concerns as they learn about your work, come to understand it more deeply, consider engaging with you, right? It's from a consumer standpoint, we call it the buyer's journey, but everybody goes on that journey. And, you know, as I'm describing this, anybody who works in development knows there are questions that they get early in the process and questions they get right before that check is signed. And they always happen in the same order, more or less. And that's the buyer's journey. And so we we really do this deep, empathetic exercise of putting ourselves in their place, writing down all of the questions and concerns and wonderings and, you know, everything that they're going through as they're as they're making this decision. But the thing is, we do it in their work. We don't say, oh, they're concerned about climate change. No, we, as part of the exercise, we would say things like, I am anxious that I'm not doing enough to help with climate change because it really changes the way that we can speak to them in our marketing. The language that we use changes when we can actually see their words and and feel more deeply what they're going through. It's a really human process. Which I really think gets back to that compassion and empathy that you talk a lot about. You know, let's let's talk to our donors, our volunteers, our supporters with compassion and empathy and not not at them. Yeah. And it's really hard. Like I understand from a nonprofits are doing such important work, right? All of my clients I'm, could not be prouder of the people that I get to work with. But the truth is that, like, if all they do is talk about themselves, nobody wants to hang out with that person. No, like if nobody wants that friend. Right. You want a friend that can reflect back at you what you're going through and empathize and listen and help you accomplish your goals. And that's how we should be positioning ourselves. Yeah. yeah. So can you share a story maybe of an organization you worked with and when you started working with them, they thought that everyone in their community were their people. And when they were done, they realized, oh, wait, we could be good with one and a half percent of our community or even a fraction of one percent of our community. Ooh, that's a good challenging question. Let me see if I can if I can think of a good story. Yes. Okay. I have a this is this is great. This is actually very early in the open lines, uh, in the open lines framework development. I was working with social venture partners in San Diego. Um, and they're a wonderful organization, right? Um, professional volunteers. They they work with a bunch of small nonprofits to place professional volunteers. And the ED was she came at it from the point of view of everyone I interview might be a, a huge donor, they might be a volunteer, they might be a board member, and I have to treat them that way. And so we went through this exercise of identifying, no, actually, there's only a couple of different types of people that we actually want to work with. The ones that are successful, they are going, they are retired, but still lively, mm-hmm. right? Or they are in the middle of their career and really feel strongly about causes and giving back, right? Those are those are basically it. And the mid-career person is more likely to be a woman. 
and the retired person is more likely to be a dude. And we should know that in the way that we're like communicating and, and managing this mm-hmm. thing too as well. And so we had that conversation. We did the work. She took it back to her board. She got pushed back from her board. I went in and actually did a board sort of presentation. Mm-hmm. I do this a lot of like consensus building. Mm-hmm. We work with the team doing the marketing first and then go back to the board and help them get on, on board with the plan, right? And at the end of it, she called me six weeks later and she said, my entire work day has changed because I have now the freedom to qualify my leads. <laughs> she said, there are so many people I can give them this entry level opportunity. If you want to give at this level, if you want to volunteer or attend this kind of meeting, we'd love to have you. And then we can talk more. And so she put up these walls, basically these checkpoints that people have to get through to prove that they are actually those more high value personas that she was pursuing. And it absolutely changed the way she managed her work. That is a fantastic story, Lindsay. And and I'll share with you, it also reminds me of something that we do sometimes. We don't do a lot of fundraising consulting, but every now and then we'll have a board that says, as part of our retreat, could you include something on fundraising training? And, and we'll do that. We also, by the way, when we do, when we help onboard new board members, and some of our clients have us do that for them, we'll do four, four sessions, onboarding sessions, 90 minutes each, and one is always on fundraising. And so what we will often do is we'll create fake donor personas. Mm-hmm. So like 10 to 15 donor personas, and then we'll have them break out in groups and decide, is this really a prospective donor or is this not Ooh, a prospective donor? That's great. I love that. I have not done it that way. Usually it does come from the the place of recognizing. I mean, it's much easier to name in a consumer environment because it's very simple. If price is an objection, they are not your audience. That's just it. They're not your customer if they can't afford your product. Right. And convincing somebody that they might be able to afford you is a terrible way to do business, right? Mm-hmm. And so- that has a really easy to follow analog when you start talking about fundraising, yeah. right? I think that's the piece that d- can sort of move the needle for folks right. where it's just like, it means you're not doing these other things that you know are more effective, right? For me, I'm very utilitarian about it. I'm always looking at the trade-offs. Like if you're spending your time this way, what are you missing and which is more effective for your organization at the end of I will share with you, there's, I just want to share with you two or three donor personas that we always put in there. Nice. Because as staff, we often hear board members say, oh, we should go approach someone who looks like this. And, and as staff, we know this is a waste of time. Yeah. So, <laughs> we, just, we just do like, I've hit my head against that wall enough to know that's a waste of time. So one actually, and they're all based on real people. So one is based on a family member of mine who um, he and his family have a household income of about $350,000 a year. And the last time he made a gift to charity was in the year 2000, so 23 years ago. <laughs> and, and and it was the year our dad died and he made he made a gift in honor of our dad. One of the things he always says is, I am my favorite charity. Yeah. And I'll say that. And so I'm always shocked at the number of board members who will say, well, you know, but he, his income is so high. We should absolutely talk to him. No, if someone's not a donor, you know, like, like either people are donors or they're not. If they're yeah. not philanthropic, Forget it. It's That's a waste right. of your time. That's um, absolutely right. One of the other uh, bait donor personas that we will often share is the multimillionaire. So worth $50, 60000000 million. Mm-hmm. 
only gives to national organizations in the field that this organization is working in. Right. And this, you know, and, and oftentimes it's a local organization we're presenting this to. And, and they'll say, oh, but but they're really committed to whatever the cause is, Parkinson's, puppies, whatever it is, right, yeah. really committed. And there were so much we need to get in front of them. And the response is always, and we always say this in the donor persona, no one in the organization knows that. Don't waste your time. That's not, right. and, and someone will say, it was worth a letter. And, and this is where I love being a consultant. We're able to say, it's not. It's not <laughs> worth a letter. Right. So this came up yesterday in the boot camp because uh, someone asked me, our board member wants us to do this to our email signatures. And what's your opinion on that? And I asked a couple of questions. Okay, like, what are your email signatures for right now? And who is getting these emails? These are for personal card, like your personal correspondence, whatever. Clarified, yes, it's everything that you expect it to be. And my response is, there's no downside. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt anything. So why not, right? But what you're talking about is using resource. This is why I tell my clients all the time how to use Facebook in a way that takes zero resources, because there are downsides to doing things that don't work. And sometimes it's bad. Like there was an organization yesterday, we had a conversation, their brand name is damaging their opportunity because it is straight up misleading. It does not reflect the services that they provide to their community. It indicates something different. That's really bad. Not changing that name is an act that is damaging the organization, right? And in the same way, there's lots of different things that board members recommend, <laughs> right? That it turns out they don't even see the downside. And it's difficult to get them to see the downside where it's not a zero-sum game here. It's like, we had all the resources in the world. Maybe we could get away with that. I, that's just not the way I think. Yeah. I think we need to be more efficient. Agreed. And I'll also say, like, in those trainings, what we'll often say to the board member who then gets, they'll double down. Sometimes board members will double down. Actually, that's not true. They'll quadruple down. Because yeah. instead of talking about, like, a millionaire, they'll talk about a billionaire. And they'll say, well, it would be worth my time to send a letter to, you name the billionaire, Oprah Winfrey, Bernie Marcus, whatever. And, and our response is always, if you're going to take 90 minutes of, of your volunteer time as a board member, to write a letter, please write a thank you letter to your largest donor. Yeah. From you as a board member. Yeah. That's going to have more of a payoff than sending Oprah Winfrey a letter that she will never read, that her assistant's assistant assistant will open and throw and away. And throw away. And like how many people try that? It gets you nowhere. And so this is probably a good transition point for us to talk about the journey. Because mm. I have a feeling for the vast majority of our friends who are listening, Oprah Winfrey is not on the journey. <laughs> to, to give to their organization. Right. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, I want that for them. I do. But it's probably not true. Yeah. Right. So let's talk about the journey. So I think this is the most important piece of it to me is actually understanding that you can't go from zero to 60. The language I use in my clients and that I will use in my uh, talk on Friday is actually that we try to propose on a first date. Like if you're putting ads on Facebook or on LinkedIn asking for donations, you're literally asking people who have never heard of you to open their wallets. And, and can I just jump in? Yeah. Because we've all experienced this. It's kind of like that creepy person on LinkedIn who yeah. friends you and then immediately says, can I, can I talk to you about your phone system? You might need a new phone system. I call it digital close talking. It's like there's something about 
the internet, that we forget about normal human relationships and boundaries. And we forget about the ways that our brain works and we think other people's brains work differently. It's so weird. And so the journey is this exercise that forces us to understand that donors are just like us and they need to understand and they need to trust and they need to feel connected. It's not, I I reject like traditional sort of patriarchal versions of donors that need to feel that they are special and that we can't do it without them. Instead, I come from an abundance mindset that says, we are offering an opportunity to have an impact on your community. We are offering an opportunity for you to make an important change in the world, but we're not asking for anything. <laughs> we're not, we are not beseeching, we are not begging, and we are certainly not ass kissing to get there. And, and let me just say, to go back to the first point, yeah. if you find your people, they want that opportunity. They can't wait. Right. There's a whole meme about it, right? Shut up and take my money. It's a whole <laughs> meme on the internet. And that's exactly the way we, those are the people we should be looking for. So the journey, just to like get to the technical bits of it, because it is it is much more than marketing, the way that I think about the journey. Yes, we have your problem stage, right? It's like, there's a thing, we're not active in it yet. We're still passively. It's the, I got an invitation to this wedding. I don't know what I'm going to wear. That's the, right? Then you have research. And the research stage is gathering your options. How might I proceed? What are all the different ways that I could explore? Planning stage then is narrowing down your options. It's like the, the research stage is the emotional and the values questions. And the planning stage is the time and the money. What's at stake for me to make this choice, right? And then in the solution stage, and I think this is a huge missed opportunity. If we think of our delivery of service, decision-making, solution, put the check in the mail stage as a marketing opportunity, how does it change the way we onboard our volunteers or our board members? How do we change, how does it change the way we create unboxing experiences or whatever, right? It's really powerful. And then the last stage is the advocacy piece, right? The referral piece. We think about what's the difference in our, in our, in our like whole universe of stakeholders. When you think about the people that won't shut up about us, our biggest fans, the ones that like their family members know who we are because they just love our work. And then the people who are just like regular happy about us. What's the difference between those two people? Like those two individuals, what was their experience? Mm. And how do we turn more of the regular happy people into those vocal advocates that are out there doing our work for us? Every business owner knows that the cheapest marketing, the best marketing on the planet is referrals. Why aren't we better at making it happen? We can encourage it. We can foster it. And if we do it thoughtfully, that's the most efficient marketing we can spend money on. I have to share with you, Lindsay, something that that immediately made me think about that I told someone earlier today. And so when we first started in, on the introduction of this podcast, I mentioned there's a lot of similarities between nonprofit, small nonprofits and small for-profits. And down on the vendor floor at Cause Camp, someone who came by the podcast booth asked me if I had a card. And, and I said, I've, I've not had a card in years. And the person seemed surprised by it. And I said, well, 90% of my business comes from referral. Mm. Uh, 
cards are kind of pointless, but I, I do have this little flyer about the podcast and I'll just write a note to you on the back with my contact information. And that way you also have to take the flyer. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but again, like to me, like that is kind of that, that journey. piece. We want those donors who are telling other people, oh, I give to the Cuddly Puppy Foundation because I love puppies and you do too. That's right. You should give to the Cuddly Puppy Foundation. That's right. And, but it's more than that. It's because their work is special in this way. They have this absolutely fantastic thing. It's like, if we believe that the work we are doing is important and valuable, then it's an offer that we make and others see that and want to get on board, right? Yeah, we, we, we actually, it's funny, I just said Cuddly Puppy Foundation. We have a client that's a humane society. Cool. And whenever we start a strategic planning project, we always make, well, we always do a little bit of a fundraising, a mini fundraising evaluation. Mm-hmm. So we always make, uh, on behalf of the firm, a small contribution. And it's not so much that we're making the contribution. We want to see what what acknowledgement we yeah. get back, et cetera. So it's a little, yeah. it's a little secret shopping. I absolutely do yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a little secret shopping. But I'll share with you what I've been so impressed at with this organization is they actually have an acknowledgement series that's really a series of invitations to get more involved yes, with the organization. That's excellent. So, so like I got I got five or six different invitations Perfect. to get more involved before I got the, hey, will you become a monthly donor? Yeah. So it was not, oh, you gave to us last week. Will you become a monthly donor this yeah. week? Yeah. I would love to know the the next level for that, right? Is if you didn't open that six, those six emails, would you still get the become a monthly donor email at the end of it? Right. Right. That's the, because that's when you can like be super responsive. It's like, did you get one because you opened the last one and so on? I love onboarding email series, I think are one of these things that are not done enough or well or thoughtfully. And I, I think they can be really powerful. And I will share with you, this organization did both digital and mail. So Ah. I got a series of emails. I also got some things in the mail. For example, there was a postcard that had a handwritten note from a volunteer. That's nice. Encouraging me to come and see the work at the Humane Society. That's cool. Yeah. See, the handwritten, I approve. I would like to start to normalize not sending any print things unless I've asked for it. That genuinely, I am so mad at the amount of money that is wasted. I am a donor. I can't wait to get like... You, I always know how much money is available for me to donate and I can't wait to get the request, right? So I am thrilled to be able to give my money away, but it makes me not want to give to the organizations that spend dozens or tens or more money every year trying to make me feel guilty about their choice to waste trees. Right. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't intend to throw a fit, but I'm like, I really, it makes me so mad. I get it. I And, and I really do get that. And I am shocked at the number of organizations where, for example, I give to the ACLU. I've been a member yeah. for 20 plus years. And then they always send me this, this renewal package, literally a series. It's huge. Um, and it starts six or eight months out. So literally, I just I just made my gift. And three or four months later, I start to get letters. Are you going to renew? Are you going to renew? And it's not like I'm giving that much. They're spending more on the mail. I've actually emailed, sorry, I've actually mailed their chief executive a letter saying, please, please put stop. me on your do not mail list. I will be renewing every year, yeah. no matter what. Please put me on your do not mail list. And yet, and I'll get off it for a year and somehow I end up back on and the mail And this is the thing is I really, I feel like these organizations don't understand their audience is changing, right? Our parents, they needed that. 
because they were checking their email every day because they, I mean, they're still probably not to be fair, like different generations need different things and you cannot keep using the same thing for a different set of, of values. Right. Right. And, and, and I will just say, and again, huge support of the ACLU. I think everyone should give. To yeah, them. yeah, yeah. I do too. Yeah. But ACL, I'm going to name names, ready? <laughs> ACLU, Heifer International. I am looking at you, man. That makes me crazy. I love to buy a goat. I do. But those packets that come through and then I get postcards, I get calendars, I get stickers and like, that's cool. My my stepdaughter loves those things. Like I'm thrilled to give her, you know, the butterfly calendar or whatever, but I really wish they hadn't sent it to me. And let me just say, Anthony Romero, if you are still the chief executive of the ACLU National and you listen to this podcast, please call up your chief philanthropy officer and tell them to put me on your do not mail list. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh. But so I know there was one more we were hoping to talk about before we before we're out of time. One of your eight steps is to ask the question, where does our donors' journeys take them? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll tell this one through a story because I, I use this story a lot in uh, in talks that I give and in, in the curriculum. If you've ever been to a Japanese garden, if you haven't, I highly recommend that you go. The thing that they do incredibly well is this balance between man-made, engineered, and natural and wild, right? That's It's really, really stunning the way these two, two elements sort of get to play together in that context. And one of the most notable ways that this plays out is in the walkways. So for most of the Japanese garden, there's these big, broad, flat paths, right? And they're flagstone or they're poured concrete or whatever. And the idea is literally that you can like walk around and keep your eyes up. You can take in the scenery and the trees and the buildings and whatever. But there's these other moments, these stepping stones, and they're usually rough hewn. They're often um, different types of stone. So the texture under your feet is different. And they're usually going either up a hill or downhill or around a corner or something. This is literally a, a move on the architect's part to force you to keep your eyes on your feet. You look down so that you don't fall down and you walk the path. And in as a, as a gift to you, as a, like because you followed that path, when you get to the end of it, there's another big, broad, flat landing pad you step onto it, you lift your eyes, and there is a magnificent vista, some kind of view that was curated just to impact you at the end of that walk. It's called hide and reveal. That's the English translation of the Japanese word for this technique. I want our marketing to be like those stepping stones. So thoughtful that our audiences just move from our social media to our website, to the deeper pages of our website, to an in-person event, to our email newsletter, they, we can thoughtfully plan each step for them because we know if we answer their question at this step, they will move on to the next step. And if we think it through in that way, we can simplify our calls to action. We don't send an email newsletter that goes to five different audiences with five different calls to action. We send an email newsletter that goes to one audience that is super specific and has one next step in it. And so we simplify their journey for them because we know what they care about, because we're empathetically thinking about 
them as humans walking this path. And we're super patient. One step follows the next, follows the next. And they're going to walk it in their own damn time, right? Like we know people are chaotic, crazy, crazy beings. They're not going to walk that path directly. But if we set it out for them thoughtfully, when they get to the end of the path, it is like, ah, right? That's like the view comes out and, and it's an easy, easy, easy offer for them to accept because we've spent the time demonstrating how much they can trust us, how much we know what they care about and what is important to them and how focused we are on serving them in that journey. I've got a quick follow-up question and friends, I, I know we're already like 30 something minutes in, but I think this follow-up question is really important. So I know you just described kind of creating that journey. Once you've created it, is it, is it trial and error and then iterate or how do you perfect that journey? That is a great question. Yes. So I, yesterday in a boot camp, I sort of described what I think of as three different phases of marketing maturity, right? Phase one is random acts of marketing. You are doing whatever you think you should be doing or whatever your ED tells you to do, right? Or whatever works for, uh, appears to be working for other organizations. That's random acts of marketing. Cool. At least you're not, you're not invisible. Then you mature into a strategic marketing plan. Something like what I've described, where it's well-considered, you know who you're not for, you are thoughtfully using each channel to inform content on other channels, right? That's great. That's an important step. And then the third step is taking that strategy and consistently measuring it and optimizing it. And so that's where you can look really, once, once you have the framework in place, you can say, oh, the role of our social media is to engage our existing members, right? Or look for new members. Probably shouldn't be asked to do both, by the way. Those are two really different audiences with different needs. But you can say, like, our Facebook is designed to do this for this audience. Then it becomes really easy to measure whether or not it's doing that effectively, right? And so that's the point is that all of the numbers should be going up a little bit together. And the first thing that needs your attention is when one of those numbers is out of sync with the others, right? When you can say, oh, it's this landing page that is not converting the way that we expect all of these other stepping stones to convert. And then you know where you should be troubleshooting. That's incredibly helpful. Thank you, Lindsay. And, you know, in every episode, we pivot to the off the map question. And I know, and I did this set, and our friends know too, who are listening because they heard me say it in the introduction. So once upon a time, you were a school teacher. I'd love for you to share what you taught. And if you're okay with this, I'd like to try to guess what I think you taught, and then we'll see how wrong I am. Ooh, I love this game. Yeah, yes, absolutely. By the way, I will often do this when I meet people instead of instead of asking what they do for a living. I'm like, can can I guess maybe how you structure your weekdays? And sometimes I don't even guess they're working. And sometimes I'm right. Sometimes I'm wrong. Um, Whoa. Yeah, um, it's fun to do, and people really get into it. That's so <laughs> bold. I'd be terrified of offending somebody with my guess. I try not to say things that I think people would be offended by. So, so, <laughs> so 
Yeah. So I'm never like, I bet you're the executioner for the state of Georgia. Right, yeah. And, and I'm opposed to capital God. punishment. You know? Right, right. I never guess that. I know. I guess. I, I am applying my own values to that. That's fair. That's oh, fair. Because I was trying to think like what someone might find offensive. And I was like, yeah, executioner. I just don't even find that offensive. Well, certainly. But I can also be, you know, but I could be like, oh, you're. You're a corporate lawyer, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's see. So I'm going to guess that you taught high school. Mm. And the way you said that, I think I'm already wrong. But <laughs> I'm going to guess that you taught high school and I'm going to go out on a limb. I think you taught some type of performing arts. Oh, wow. How wrong am I? You're really wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I taught fourth and fifth grade. And I will say over and over again, if you're a parent or a teacher, you probably already know that like fourth and fifth graders are the best. They're actually the best. And I can prove it with science because (laughs) their brains, their little brains have developed to the point that they have critical thinking skills. They can really start to evaluate things based on their own experience and understanding in a way that younger children simply cannot do but they haven't started puberty yet. And it is a very special age for that reason. And I got very lucky because I was teaching in schools that had very serious needs. I taught in Oakland Unified in California and then in West Contra Costa Unified, which is demographically the same, but doesn't have the brand recognition of Oakland. And uh, it was an incredibly formative experience for me. I was teaching at the time that uh, the Gulf War started. And so the the piling on of coming to understand my white privilege, coming to understand what class privilege I had, uh, it, those things in the context of where and who I was teaching formed a basis for, you know, some of the work I'm still doing today. Not to mention the teaching part, which is essential to my work now. Wow, that that is super cool. Uh, I also am actually happy to be wrong, so I think it's super cool that you were a fourth and fifth grade teacher. It's the best. Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I always want to make sure that our friends know how they can get a hold of you. And, and I think there are many reasons why they're going to want, to want to actually reach out to you. But so the first is your URL is open-lines.co. That's correct. And friends, while you are there, there's a few things I want you to do. There's a tab called resources. And so... First of all, we've only talked about three of the steps. So in addition to seeing the entire framework, which is a chart, underneath that, you can see all eight steps. So if you're like, oh, these three were helpful, what are the other five? Make sure you go to open-lines.co. Additionally, you can click under resources on articles. And these are articles that Lindsay has written. They're phenomenal articles. Some are on marketing, some are on delegation, some are on how to use your time better, And some of the articles are on other really important topics like equity and inclusion. So make sure you also check out articles. Also at the website, Lindsay has a book that's about to come out. And and Lindsay, I I, I clicked on book and I know it's about to come out. Maybe I missed it. What's the title of the upcoming book? Oh, I have no idea. No, it's not. So about to come out is overstating the case. (laughs) This is the first year of my life that I have said, I'm going to finish my book this year. So it is uh, probably going to come out next year, but it is, it's really my, my goal for the book 
is that it is a user manual for the framework. Um, because I am a marketing activist, I want this tool to be as widely available to as many people as possible. And so this is will be the lowest price point opportunity to get the full series, the full the full benefit of the work. That's the plan. That's certainly fair. And, and thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Also, friends, Lindsay has some online courses. And one course that's extremely popular is Never Enough Time. And she is making a special offer just for you because you listen to the podcast. So she will allow you to get that course at half price. Just use the code SNPCC. We are going to link to the course. We're also going to link to Lindsay's LinkedIn profile and to the URL open-lines.co. Lindsay, thank you again for coming on the podcast. You're so welcome. It's been lovely to chat with you. All right, friends, you know, this is the tail end of the show and it goes quick. I always ask, please, please, if you like the Successful Nonprofits podcast, rate and review it. And if you want to do me a personal favor, share it with a friend. And I genuinely mean that is a personal favor. Whenever anyone says to me, hey, Dolph, I just recommended your podcast to someone else, it feels like, literally, it feels like they just jump-started my like my, like my car's dead in the parking lot and a friend came over and jump-started it because there's no other cars in the parking lot to help me out. Also, friends, if you liked this episode, if you got a lot from Lindsay from learning about the framework and three of her eight steps to achieve that framework, there are two other episodes that I think you are also going to get a lot out of. The first is episode 299, Unlock the Power of Social Media with Nick Black. Lindsay talked about how so many of us are doing social media wrong, and Nick Black can help you with that as well. And also, make sure you download episode 246, Attention-Grabbing Marketing with Dan Shepley. So, you know, when I started the intro, I said, do you feel like maybe you're screaming into the void or even worse, whispering into the void? If you feel like you're whispering into the void, download and listen to episode 246 with Dan. That, my friends, is our episode this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help you and your nonprofit thrive. And you know, the lawyers make me do this or I would not do it, honestly. I'm not an accountant. I'm also not an attorney. And do you know why I'm not an accountant or an attorney? Because I didn't go to school for that. And I didn't take an exam for that. This podcast is for informational purposes only. And it should not be relied on for legal tax or accounting advice. I don't even think we talked about it this time, but the attorneys still make me say it. So please, if that is what you need, find a licensed, qualified professional in your area. I would suggest you not use the yellow pages for that. By the way, I just dated myself, but I would suggest you not use the (laughs) yellow pages for that. I would also suggest you not use Google. Ask for recommendations. Or you could even reach out to me. And I actually do have some people who reach out and say, Dolph, do you know someone in my area? And baffling enough, sometimes like someone reached out to me a few months ago and said, Dolph, do you know someone in Phoenix? And I did. So you can also reach out to me. And if I know someone, I'm happy to make the connection. 